0: They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.
2: Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to the Element Podcast. Hey, guys, we're fixing to get to the podcast, but first, I wanted to tell you about a giveaway we're doing. KC, give us the quick details.
3: All right, guys, we are giving away two, kind of one, two premium Onyx memberships. And if you're a public land hunter or private land guy who's looking for access to new places and landowner names, there really is not a better tool out there for you to use. And Tyler and I use these things, our premium membership Everywhere we go in the country, pretty much. We're going to use it for trout fishing in Bozeman. We're going to use it for hunting deer in the Midwest. We're going to use it for hunting deer right here at home in Texas all the time. It's great for marking your waypoints and keeping up where camera locations are and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just some pretty sweet layers. If you're talking about going out of state to go hunt like a state that might be a CWD state, you can uh, now look at the QDMA layer and see what's on there. So these are pretty valuable for us. All right. And we're giving away two of them. And here's how you can win them you go to iTunes. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of the Element Podcast page, okay? And you'll see a spot where you can click five stars. Go all the way to the right and click the fifth star and then write a little description. Maybe like, I really like Tyler's Mohawk, even though like maybe it's (laughs) countercultural. Or you can write something (laughs) like, you know, Casey's new Orange Public Land boots are awesome. And give us five stars. And yeah, as of then, you will be entered into the drawing for one of those two onyx premium memberships yeah and uh what if they win both of them is there a chance of that i guess if they leave two reviews they might win both of them so do that <laughs> that's fine that's perfectly permissible and give one to one of your buddies there you, you go know? be a there good go. hunting buddy
2: all right so let's get to the podcast all right so on the phone i have dr carl miller he is a distinguished professor of deer management at the university of georgia that's a tongue twister how are you doing <laughs> dr miller <laughs> I'm doing fine. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing good. It's uh it's pretty warm. Are you staying cool where you're at?
4: No, I this is, we're in Georgia in July. It's never cool in
2: Georgia in <laughs> July. <laughs> yep, I know it. We uh we're living here in Texas and uh it was one ten when we got back from the Q D M A convention yesterday. Um it was one oh two today. We had a cold front last night, so uh, we're doing Lord, it but we,
4: we haven't approached that you know <laughs> that close
2: yeah it's it's definitely warm for sure here but uh, a little less humid than it was there in new orleans
4: yeah my wife's from texas and so she keeps you know saying she wants to go back to texas but when i hear 102 and 106 no that's not gonna
2: happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah what uh what part of texas is she from she's from around the denton area okay oh, yeah cool. that's cool we uh we're here just uh probably about 70 80 miles east of denton kind of so uh, out on Interstate 30, so not too wow. far away.
4: And, I, and I've got a son up at Shepard Air Force Base up in Wichita Falls, too.
2: Oh, cool. Nice. Yep, yep not far at all. Man, so y'all are, y'all are pretty, uh, pretty. you kind of know what we're talking about sometimes, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so I know the highlight of the QDMA convention was definitely you running into KC and myself, <laughs> but uh, after that, did you enjoy the rest <laughs> of the event? It
4: made my day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How'd the rest of the event go for you?
4: Was, it was actually a very good convention I was really really pleased I had you know wide diversity of talks from very technical scientific talks all the way down to you know some how to hunting talks mm-hmm. and a lot about deer management and a lot about the future of the whitetail it was all it all worked out It was a good convention,
2: sure yeah yeah I thought so too I mean there was definitely a lot of things that uh, you know I was k c and myself that was our first time uh to go to the convention and so everything was so new to us and um you know we we knew of guys like you and Dr. Craig Harper and guys that are just experts in this, and we definitely didn't want to miss those, and glad that we didn't, and we're able to learn uh, learn things. But man, it was it was uh, it was a lot to take in, a lot of new people to meet, and uh, came away with a good, a really uh, good taste in my mouth about the whole thing. You know, I always try to kind of uh, validate uh, any kind of organization like that, that may be a conservation organization type, and just make sure that. I believe in it before I really start getting super involved, you know, and I, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely, Both. definitely had a good taste in my mouth afterwards.
1: Yeah,
4: supposedly they're going to be holding this thing in Athens, here in Athens, Georgia, next year. So if if that is the case, hope to see you over our way.
2: Oh yeah, I'm sure we will, and that that's what we heard too. And uh, there there seems like there's going to be a really good opportunity to uh, kind of. Um, I guess there's more research facilities and things that we might be able to tour and kind of talk about there. Is that kind right. of the thing that goes on there, in Georgia?
4: Right. We have, we have a, a pretty, pretty good-sized research facility about four or five miles outside of Athens.
2: Okay, cool. So one of my favorite parts was the panel of you and Cuz and Joe Hamilton and Matt all up there kind of telling the old stories. I, I really yeah. like to kind of reminisce about how things used to be sometimes. So we... We grew up here on Lake Fork in Texas, which is a huge bass fishing lake, and, like, all the old guide stories are always intriguing to me. Um, but anyway, you gave us kind of a spill on the future of deer hunting um, towards the end, some of, some of the things that we need to look out for, um, actions that may need to be taken going forward. And it was actually probably my favorite few minutes of the whole convention. So is there a way you can kind of reiterate some of that for our listeners?
4: Oh, boy, I guess it's... I'm going to try to do this without painting a picture of doom and gloom, but you know there <laughs> are, there are some major concerns, major issues to deal with out there right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, you know what, what I said at the time when the panel that you're referring to is, you know, I, I took it back into the history that, you know, one time the whitetail faced a lot of a lot of issues as well. At one time, we didn't have whitetails in in most of the country, and you know the people who stepped forward to to, to, to lead to to provide that leadership to get the whitetail restored. Uh, it was a it was a massive effort, you know. They were up against a lot of things, and but it got done. And then we got to the phase where we had, you know, deer got reestablished, and the deer actually did too well. and We ended up having way too many deer, and we were seeing out of balance sex ratios and overpopulations of deer and so forth. And again, we had to see have that rallying cry from a few a uh, few professionals such as Joe Hamilton who started the QDMA, uh, and you know other researchers, uh, Al Brothers in Texas. Uh, and And a number of other people that you know started the rallying cry of, "Hey, we need to manage these deer's appropriately in within balance of their habitat and to achieve the types of natural sex ratios and age structures that that um that that they us- they should have mm-hmm. well we we and we were very successful in the, what you know what the QDMA has done and then the education part of it of educating hunters all across this country has been tremendous, but you know here I think we're facing a, a kind of another another another. Another phase of the issues. The white-tailed deer has been extremely successful, but right now the white-tailed it has has some issues facing it in many parts of the country. We've seen the, the predator, the coyote, expand, you know, from its historic range in the Midwest and through you know from Texas up through the Midwest to all across North America now. Yeah. And in some areas, we're seeing some pretty significant declines in recruitment. And you know that that can be offset with some declines in, in doe harvest, but you're going to get to a point where uh you know if if you're you're not harvesting enough if the hunters aren't satisfied with the, with the ability to harvest deer uh they we're going to start losing hunters as well mm-hmm. so we're facing we're facing that we're facing you know growing bear populations all up and down the Appalachian chain and other places where bears still occur but I think the biggest issue we're facing right now, and I think everybody would agree with it is some some of the disease issues with the white tail and some of which were you know that we can deal with with things like e h d but the biggest one and one that scares me the most is chronic wasting disease, because I think we're still sitting on the, the tip of the iceberg. We've seen it spread to, what is the 23 to 25 states right now uh, that currently have it in at least some part of the state,
1: mm-hmm. and that's
4: going to continue to spread, and we're seeing the, the prevalence of it spread where it does occur now and the the extent of it. It's moving It's moving across this country. Thankfully, yeah. other than uh, one reporting in Mississippi and the southeast, we're pretty much free of it, but, uh, you know, Time will tell. We've seen how fast it's moved from one state to to another.
2: Sure. Yeah, it's. Uh... So we've got
4: we've got a lot of work to cut out. You know, cut out for us in the future, and organizations like the QDMA or any other conservation organization, hunters are going to need to become involved, <clears throat> become involved with their voice, become involved with their money. Uh, you know, because this is not going to be a simple solution. Up to this point, you know, we, the white-tailed deer has been successful because it has a biology that allowed it to be successful. It's very high reproductive rates. But right now, and so at the time, we only had social issues to deal with you know hunters, our bag limits and so forth, but now we not, we not only have social issues we got biological issues to deal with
2: there's a lot there we had um, you know we we're a pretty recent uh, c w d state here in Texas, and uh, it's amazing that it's recent actually, in my opinion, you know because of uh, how many deer have moved around the state and from other states into ours um, certainly but um I guess the first thing I would say in response to that is who is the guy or the organization, you know, like being in the world of academia, I feel like you might have a handle on this that will lead us into the battle against CWD and help us find a way out of this thing.
4: Uh, I don't think there is a guy. And it's going to take a lot of money because this is a disease issue that, you know, these prion diseases are a very, very difficult issue to deal with. Um we've been raising deer here in our in our facility in, in Georgia and, and and actually transporting bottle raising them and transporting them out to Colorado state for the last oh, almost 15 years to pro- provide them some known disease free deer uh, because Georgia is disease free and in the, you know, they, so the, and they have to end up going into a biosecure laboratory and so forth. So the cost of doing research with something like CWD is incredible. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be done through a you know, there's got to be some political uh, capital expended here, um, and organizations like the Quality Deer Management Association, the Mule Deer, so- you know, uh, Society and so forth. All these organizations, and they have recently formed, they've, 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 they've uh, come together and formed what is called the National Deer Alliance.
2: Mm-hmm. You
4: may have heard about that. Yes, sir. But that's kind of get, to get a footprint, uh, get the hunter's voice and, the, and a footprint into some of these issues that, that go beyond individual species, like whitetails. So we've mm-hmm. got mule deer and, and elk and so forth associated with that as well. Mm-hmm. Boone Crockett Association, is, uh, Boone Crockett Club is associated with it as well. So this thing is just you know kind of relatively relatively new. It's in its infancy, only a few years in existence, but it's already started to have some of that political influence. And we need to have a lot of hunters uh, voice their 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 opinions and, and and push that influence as well. Because frankly, we're going to have to loosen up a lot of state and federal dollars mm-hmm. to tackle this one.
2: Yeah, for sure. I know, I know the NDA is working on that. I think with the TRCP right now, and we've had uh, Nick Penizzato on the on the podcast actually. I think twice. Oh, great, great. Yeah, so. Um, you know, we've definitely um, discussed, I think the last discussion we had with Nick on the podcast was actually pretty much all CWD talk. So uh, it's definitely, we're doing, we're trying to do our part and, and make sure to spread the word and, and hopefully educate some hunters that may not know about it that um, that can can voice, you know, voice for the cause, I guess. So, um, yeah, and,
4: certainly, and you know, deer hunters have been pretty complacent, you know, they've, they've had it too easy for too long and, and, and it's going to change and if they want to preserve their sport, they're going to have to speak
2: up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you kind of hit on something about predators there, and uh, I have a guy right next to me that uh, <laughs> did a lot of work um, for coyotes, against coyotes, I guess, and uh, pretty much he he has a, a mindset that's probably, I don't want to speak for him too much here, but he definitely likes to shoot coyotes when he can and um, kind of get rid of some of them on the landscape. They're pretty um efficient at what they do as far as hunting and feeding themselves um how do you feel about that i know there was a presentation about uh the whole coyote issue um there at the qdma event
4: yeah that was will Goldsby from from auburn he's actually one of my former phd students Mm who's now a professor over at auburn Mm -hmm. uh, and doing doing some good good work over there as well and we've had um geez, for the last 20 years here, in, in, uh, or better, in, in the southeast, we've had some research directed towards what impact are these animals having and, and a little, trying to understand a little bit more about the biology of this eastern coyote. And we're finding some really fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, you're, always, you're, always, you're, you're in Texas, you always have had coyotes, you know, as long as you've lived there, I'm sure, and up and down the Midwest, and you, and you deal with that uh, on a landscape scale. But what we're finding is this, this critter, this dog that we got over here, is a little bit different than the western coyote. Its behavior is different, how it uses the landscape's different, and it's a little bit bigger. Its food habits are different. You know, this, is an, this coyote is an extremely adaptable, uh, what we call a mesocarnivore. It's, it had to be a very adaptable. And it has adapted to all the different habitats all the way up and down the east coast uh, or the eastern United States and, then, and has done very well. And a white-tailed deer has been, you know, has, has, has felt the brunt of that in many places, particularly as it relates to fawn recruitment. You know, if you, when you have cows out there and, and when you've got fawns dropping on the ground and cows, um, at that time of year, there's not a lot of other, you know, any other types of soft mass and stuff like that got for them to eat. And, you know, and you're, you're trying to feed pups. Um, it's hard to beat one of those tender little protein packets laying out. in <laughs> the Yeah, with, you know, yeah what, sure enough. Uh, so, and so, and we're finding in some areas that they are taking a very significant portion of the fawns that are that are born. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got very productive deer herds in many areas of the of the eastern United States, and and it, uh, in some areas they can tolerate this predation rates. Particularly up north, they seem that the predation rate uh, on or the, the, the mortality rate rate related to coyote predation on fawns tends to be less than it is down here in the southeast. And we've seen we've seen up, upwards. In some of our studies that I've seen across the southeast, that have been published. You know, 50 to 60 percent or more of the fawns that are uh, the 50 or 60 percent mortality of fawns, and most of that due to coyote predation.
3: Man, that's kind of crazy, you know. And like you said, we've we dealt with them here for a long time, and it's it seems like there's a little bit of conflicting um, information that comes out from time to time. But I do I do know that around here, I can definitely see uh, what I think is impact. You know. Um, in my own eyes of doing my best to uh, do some predator control especially before fawn drop because we actually had a, a situation I guess it's two years ago caught a coyote on, on trail camera running video mode with uh, a fawn in its a fawn's head in its mouth while it was swimming mm-hmm. in a creek it was kind of a crazy little foot thing of footage but uh, and then today actually we went out and checked trail cameras and uh, in the middle of the night uh, had a panicked doe run in on the camera um, with her mouth open panting. you know, and I can only imagine there's just a few things that would make her do that in the middle of the night. And it's got to be, I would imagine that, you know, predation has something to do with it, you know, and it's just kind of crazy the impact that, that they
4: can have. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, what we're, what we're finding is uh, in some areas it's not just... Fawn predation, and that they are taking some adults.
1: Mm-hmm. They're
4: taking it up north in the winter time when you know it's a little easier for a, a, a coyote to move when, when they got a crust on the snow. They can they can take some adults, but even here in the southeast, we're finding some areas where we're starting to see that you know coyotes are taking some adult deer. Now, whether those adult deer are predisposed because of an injury or disease or something like that, that's hard to say. But uh, you know, it's not just fawns that they're they're feeding on. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I had a, a, a three and a half year old buck last july that was killed out in my pasture not far from my house uh I, I i saw it the following morning and he was he was he was obviously run by a pack of cows into the corner of the fence and by by the following by that morning most of him was gone so it wasn't one coyote running him either
3: man that's nuts that is crazy
4: well we didn't even get on the phone to
3: talk to you about all the deer issues that we're <laughs> facing but some some high quality information um and so let's talk about you know one of the things that the deer actually use uh you know one of their top tools to actually avoid predation and, you know avoid hunter pressure of course we want to talk to you about deer vision and how it works and some of the ins and outs on it so first off you know to kind of correlate it to the predator thing how do how do uh the deer's natural predators like coyotes like their their uh i guess their natural camouflage how does that work against a white-tailed deer
4: well Let let me put it this way first, you know, and I think this is something most hunters don't realize there, you know, with the scent industry and all the other types of things that you have out there for scent-free clothing, Mm -hmm. everybody thinks that the the main uh, sense that white-tailed deer uses to avoid predation is its sense of smell. Well, that's not not the case at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the sense of smell is totally ineffective if the, if the predator is downwind, right? Yes, sir. You know, you know, so you know, that, it, the sense of smell can, can help the deer as far as uh, predator de- detection, but its number one defense against predation is its eyes. Mm-hmm. And what we have found out with the deer's eyes is that when, it, when the deer is looking at the same landscape you're looking at, they're seeing something very, very different. And, and, and their eye is, is finely, finely tuned for the detection of movement. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't have real good acuity. They don't. Have, they have. They have color vision and stuff. But the, the. But they are just absolutely incredible at their ability to detect movement. And we we've kind of figured out the mechanism how that works.
3: Now that's interesting. And that was actually part of one of my questions was, you know, should I be worrying more about the coloration of what I wear in the woods, or should I be worrying more about? you know, being still at all times. And I guess you, you kind of answered that. So,
5: Well, I think what, what, what we got to do is if, if you've got time, um, what I, what I think would be informative is kind of take you through the progression of the research that we've done for the last 20 years and bring you up to speed exactly where we are and what we have, what we think we know about deer vision and what yeah, we might awesome. not know. So, so we started with, uh, some deer vision trials, deer, doing some vision work, uh, 20 some years ago, um, uh, we, we got together with a, you know, at that time there was a number of studies that tried to, you know, figure out whether deer could see color or not, and they used things like colored buckets and, you know, feedback to see if they could tell the difference. But those kind of things are, uh, they're, 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 wrought with interpretational errors, you know, because you got differences in hue and differences in, in shade and stuff. So we decided we were going to go inside the deer's eye to find out what they have the physiological capability of seeing. We got together with some guys, uh, vision experts at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara. And they came out and brought their, a lot of their uh, analytical equipment out here to Georgia. Uh, they're the smart ones. Uh, they brought their analytical <laughs> equipment out here to Georgia. And we actually tested five deer. Uh, and actually, what, we, what our goal was to get inside their, the deer's eye and look at what's on the, the actual the cones inside the, on the deer's retina. And I understand that. You, you remember your high school biology, right, where your mission mm-hmm. is made up of rods and cones. Rods are what we use to see in low light conditions, and you can only see black and white because they only have what's called one photo pigment on. It. Now cones are what we use to see in color, and we see three colors because we have three different photo pigments on our cones. One that peaks in red, one uh well, blue, green, and red is where there are peak central t- spect- central spectra. Sensitivity—that's hard to say this morning.
1: <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs>
5: but and any other color we see is a, is a combination of the reaction of those three cones. So we wanted to get in and see if deer had more than one um, photoreceptor on their cones, and if they did, that means that they would have at least the physiological capability of seeing color. And look—long story short, we found out that they did not have three, but they did have two photopigments. One that was very similar to our blues and one that was somewhere between our reds and our greens, somewhere in the yellow range, which means the deer have the capability of seeing what we call diachromatic, which would be fairly similar, at least as far as the color vision, to what a human that's red-green colorblind would see. They see the blues very well, but they, don't, they have a hard time distinguishing between reds and greens. Okay, so that's where we were uh, 20-some years ago. Since then, we've done a, a, a lot more work on this. And some of the next steps we took is um, trying to get in and look at some of the actual physiology or the anatomy of the eye on top of it. So I had uh, another PhD student, Gino D'Angelo, who's now a uh, Dr. D'Angelo, actually on our faculty here. George is one of the deer research biologists. And he did a number of studies looking at the deer's eye. And what we wanted to do is go into the deer's eye and map out these cones on the retina. And what re- really turns out to be very fascinating is the blue cones or the blue photopigments are distributed all around the, the retina. But the, the, the longer wavelengths are in a long band that runs, you know, horizontal along the, the deer's retina. I think it's really, really fascinating when you think about it. When a deer is looking and its eyes are, uh, if you look, ever look into a deer's eye of, of, of a living deer, their pupil is not round. It's oval shaped which means it's got more of a horizontal slit. Mm -hmm. Mm So think about the implications of that. Where where would danger come for a deer? Somewhere along the horizon, right? It's not going to come from below or above. So a deer has the ability to scan your horizon because it's got instead of a circular pupil, it's got a, a, a slit pupil. That then is translated onto the retina so that the things that are in focus on the retina are all across that band. Now here is where it comes gets really interesting, is because when a human is looking at something, and think about when you're looking at something, we're always looking at an individual point in space. Uh huh. Our our eyes are constantly moving when we're reading, when we're looking at something, and we're looking at far vision, near vision. We have a great ability to accommodate. So our vision is really, really acute. Compared to a deer's, and we look at an individual spot in space, and we recognize what that is because we can uh, build a three-dimensional structure of it very easily. Deer can't do that as well because a deer's eyes—if you ever look at a deer's eyes when uh, it's just standing there—they're not—they're like a horse; they're not moving. So instead of moving their eyes, what they see when they're looking at the horizon, everything that they see is in equal focus, but it's not in the same focus as it would be in a human. What that does is it takes away some of their visual acuity. And one of our we just finished up a study that says deer, you know deer's ability to see something and identify what a stationary object is is probably in the neighborhood of our, our, what we would equate to as a twenty sixty or twenty to eighty. words deer would almost have to wear corrective lenses to drive. Hmm. Huh. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're <laughs> thinking. But I know deer 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 got great great eyes, right? They, you know, I was sitting in my stand, I moved just a little bit, and it saw me. Yeah. Well, that's the difference. Deer get their visual acuity out of movement, not out of identifying a stationary object. How many times have you had a deer walk right up to you and look at you and then keep walking?
1: Mm-hmm.
5: That happens all the time, right? Why didn't that deer see you? Or you're standing out in a field, and you're looking at the other end of the field, and you say, hey, there's a deer out there. And what's that deer doing? Hey, what's that? Mm-hmm. And move their head side to side, trying to you know, get around, get a, get a picture of what you are. But as soon as you move, they recognize you, right?
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
5: But that's what happens with a the deer. Their eyes are stationary, but when an object in the environment moves, it moves that image on their retina across that band in the back of their eye. Hmm. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So everything a deer sees from the front of it to about three hundred degrees, they they've got a tremendous peripheral vision. And their peripheral vision, you know how ours gets cloudier and cloudier as we move out a little bit from the from mm-hmm. our focal point. Theirs is equal focus. So if a deer can see you, he's just as you're just as in focus as if he's looking straight at. Him. Wow. Which tells you, you know, but, but, it, but it's still kind of shady.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: But they get, they get that idea of movement because of, you know, from, from that, uh, that retinal streak, mm-hmm. which is also important to think, you know, you you've seen deer run through the woods, uh, you know, at, at high speed and we can't do that. Why can't we do that? So when we run through the woods, we're, our eyes are trying to focus on every stick, every branch, every root, every tree, and stuff like that, so we don't run into those things. Instead, with the deer, that's just a panorama or a movie playing out across the retina, and they see <laughs> it all. That's cool. And they don't have to track it. So that is just fascinating stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No okay, kidding. so
5: that's, that's one aspect of it. You know, as far as, you know, and, you know think of the importance of that to the hunter.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: It's not necessarily the camo you're wearing or the camo pattern you're wearing. It's going to bust you on a deer it's whether or not you're moving
1: mm-hmm.
5: the best uh-huh. camouflage you can be is stationary mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't oh, matter shit. whether you're wearing pink or yellow or, or camel pattern or the best camel pattern out there not moving is more important than what you're actually wearing as far as camo
1: mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. so now let's get to, go, go one more step beyond that when we did those vision studies years ago we got into the deer's eye and thought you know identify what we thought they could see based on physiology. But you know, there's other things that can interfere with that as well. So the next step we did was actually get the deer to tell us what they were actually seeing. In other words, to confirm what we thought they could see based on what we saw in their eye, to having them look at it in some behavioral trials. I had this uh, really, really bright student that I was working on, was a master's at the time, and he wanted to do some of this work. And to train deer to respond to colors, So we built what he built what was called a deer training apparatus, which actually it, it uses different types of different lights and sensors that is a computer driven way to give the, run these deer these trials over and over and over again uh to get an idea of what they could possibly see. And we train deer to respond to a light so they get a food reward. Simple, you know, simple like you've heard of Pavlov's dog, this is the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. Name. mm-hmm. And we worked with EverReady Energizer. They developed some LED lights that had very specific spectral signatures for us. Uh, they, they were very gracious to work with us on that. And to make a long story short, what he found is after running thousands of these trials, his deer see both in dichromatically like we expected them to. But what we didn't expect was, compared to the human, their ability to see blues, because in that original study, we couldn't tell you know, how the quality of their vision and that's part of the spectrum we can only tell that they can see it but compared to the human their ability to see blues is probably 20 times ours Mm. so when they're looking at something's blue that is extremely bright to them extremely vivid to them because they have that that ability now think about the implications of that in a number of ways first of all if you're a deer hunter and you refuse to wear blaze orange but you wear blue jeans to the deer stand, you're an idiot, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you've got, yeah. you, you, you got two bl- glowing blue legs up in the sky, right? Mm.
1: Particularly
5: at sunrise and sunset. Because at nighttime, and then you raise right that crepuscular time, when deer move, there's a lot of ambient blue light out there. And that's mm. why they utilize this. That's why it's focused for them. Mm. So deer use that blue light. They can see. And if you've ever been out in a deer stand and look at your legs, or you know, if you're wearing blue, blue jeans in the evening, do that. Look at your legs sometime and see how, how vivid that is. Think about then that a deer can see that 20 times as well. Mm.
1: Mm. Yep.
5: So, you know, that blue is very critical for them. Now, which, yeah. you know, and what you think about, here we got a deer called a white-tailed deer. Why does it have a white tail? Why isn't it a red tail? Because they see, they see blues very well. And what is being reflected off a white tail? Blue. All the colors of the spectrum that are available in right there, you know, mm-hmm. by the light that's reflecting on tail, you know, you're projected on the tail. So that tail is actually reflecting a lot of blues as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, does that mean if I have like white fletchings in the stand, they're actually showing up blue to the deer and they're showing up real bad?
5: Uh, the, the, there, there, what those white reflectors, those things that are showing up is all the colors in the spectrum that are available that are reflecting on it. Because white is just a, you know, a combination of all colors, right? Sure. That's what we see as white. So here's the thing to think about. When you have a lot of camel on, when you have camel on that has a lot of whites in that pattern. That white can be quite vivid to them. Hmm. Particularly if they've got what are called whiteners and brighteners in the fabric or in your wash. Mm -hmm. What those whiteners and brighteners do is they take UV light. And we know the deer can see into the UV a little further than we can, but that doesn't mean that we glow because of that. What Mm -hmm. that means is when you use whiteners and brighteners, it takes some part of that spectrum into the UV and re-reflects it back in the part of the spectrum we can see into the blues. So whiteners and brighteners really accentuate the blues on top of that. So camel patterns that have a lot of white in, and particularly if that, that white is, has, has dyes in there that are whiteners and brighteners, or if you use whiteners and brighteners in your watch, that becomes more vivid to a deer as well. Mm-hmm. So I generally stick with just the old time, you know, kind of the army cam- camel with the big blotches on it, into the reds and the browns and stuff like that. It aren't focused on the part of the the, uh, the spectrum where the deer's eye is, uh, is best. Mm-hmm.
3: Hmm. So there's a lot so, of marketing... Involved with those UVs, you know, like you see people talking about UV blockers or uh that sort of thing with like different sprays or detergents or whatever. Like, is is there some truth to that and using those UV blockers?
5: It, it, there, there is some truth to it, and it's not the you know, and you know, I keep coming back to this idea. It's not because it's not like a human glows like it's under a black light. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's. Because they deer can see into the UV. It's because they see blue so well that that's what these UV blockers do is they block that interaction of that dye or that whitener and brightener. That's re-reflecting some of those those lights back in the part of the spectrum where it's really, you know, the peak of the deer sensitivity.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So using you know, first of all, don't use whiteners and brighteners in your detergent when you're washing your hot and clothes first. Yes. Yeah, sure. But a UV a UV blocker, you know, that's conceptually now i've never been inside a deer's head to know what it's like we are seeing, <laughs> but, but it is it, it conceptually it makes sense that that might be something to be to, to consider
1: mm-hmm.
5: okay you guys got time to hear just some more sure oh of course okay. so let me let me take you where we got have just gone in the last uh couple of years we we're up to a couple of years ago and, and just I've, I've, I've just finished up another student who's she did some really neat work using the same uh, deer training apparatus that we use in the vision trials to actually find some other aspects of the deer's vision that's different than ours. And one of the things we looked at is what's called the temporal resolution. In other words, it's how fast deer can process visual images. So let me explain how this works. Have you, you've always, you probably have seen these things, uh, little demonstrations where you see this uh, white light flashing, on a screen or something and it flashes faster and faster and faster and faster until it almost looks like it's a solid white ball. Mm. You don't see the flash anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: That's because it's overwhelmed our ability at some point to process that information that your life is just saying it's constantly white right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And
5: it's the same thing when you see a fan or rims on your truck or something like that to take on these patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we wanted to see how fast you could, could, could do this visually. Uh, and it turns out using a, a bunch of different trials again, their, their processing speed particularly in the daytime is about four times faster than ours four hmm. times days, faster four times
2: faster Golly.
5: which would suggest that they could see movement because it, the, everything appears a little bit more in slow motion to them they can see movement that much better because of that
1: mm-hmm.
5: and it also helps them run through the woods you know when they're when they're playing, they 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 see all that stuff and they can process the, process those images faster than than we can. Mm-hmm. Wow! So again, it comes
2: back to this whole idea of movement. <clears throat> so when you you shoot at a deer with an arrow and it's say you grunt stop it, it's looking at you. I mean, we all know that deer. If you're a bow hunter, you know that deer can jump. You know, jump a string, as we call it. Is that? Sometimes, do you think that that could be due to vision as opposed to the sound?
5: You know, I I, I didn't think about that until just a few months ago. I I was talking to another biologist, and he was talking about, you know, having a deer jump an arrow on him. I got to thinking about it. You know, an arrow is not going at the speed of sound, but it's not that far under the speed of sound. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, it really can't be the sound that they're jumping. Because by the time you hear that sound and process that sound, that arrow's already there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what makes me think is they might actually be seeing, not the not not hearing it, they actually may be seeing either the arrow or the bow as yep. the bow goes through that, you know, that release and the vibrations and your movements and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As far as, you know, at the release, the bow's always going to tip, the string's changing, so, Uh mm-hmm. So they might see the process of the shot, right? And maybe even able to be able to see that arrow in flight because they're tracking five times or four times faster. <laughs> right.
2: That's interesting.
5: But I think it's probably the biggest thing is probably the movement from the stand, not the sound.
2: Yeah. Uh.
3: So hmm. on on that note, does that mean that you know what's the average lifespan for for a deer? You know, like if they're lucky, they make it to eight or nine years. But if they're perceiving, in in some places, it's a year and a half, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Before antler restrictions, that was a year and a half for sure in our county. (laughs) uh, That's true. um, So if if they're perceiving things four times as fast as us, does that mean that one year to a deer is perceived as we would perceive four years?
5: That you know, that that, that 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 gets into some, you know, let's play some kind of head games. And then people yeah. that talk about this as far as visual processing uh, among the different species. They they suggest that time flows slower for animals that have higher processing speed. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. And wow.
5: then there's for and the time there's animals out there that have slower processing speed, like like a turtle does than we do. <laughs> and the time moves much slower for them, you know. So how you you know how they perceive time? That's 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 almost metaphysical, you know, beyond right. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. capability to understand. <laughs> we're kind of getting but, into the theory of relativity there. When we're right, right.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah,
3: that's that's crazy. So I have a question for you: If deer can perceive motion that well, while we like say, for instance, if I'm jogging down the road, I'm moving, but the world around me is moving in my perception you know what i mean like everything's going by in a blur so if we have to move in the stand whether it's you know to draw our bow or to readjust or whatever is it advantageous to wait to when a deer is moving or do we really need to wait till there's a visual obstruction or something like that uh well i think you answered your own question right there
5: A visual obstruction would be obviously the best thing Uh uh-huh I mean, you know, if, if, if their eyes behind a tree, they can't see you. You know, yeah. That's, that's, well, say we're in a CRP field. How about that? <laughs> but you know, I, I, I would suggest that the best time to, to move would be while the deer is moving. Uh huh. That that would just make sense, that yeah. it would camouflage your movements more because it's in with their move their their observation of other things in their environment that's moving. Mm-hmm. But still, that even in that panorama, they'll be able to pick out something that's moving within that of those movements. Mm-hmm. It's going to be moving at different rates. The best thing is if the deer is looking directly away from you, there's about a 50 or 60 degrees angle behind the deer's head that they have a, a blind spot.
1: Mm. Compared mm-hmm.
5: to us, which which is, you know, uh, we can see about 120 or 140 degrees, they can see like almost 310 degrees. Yeah, yeah that's a lot.
3: But 50 or 60 still sounds pretty good like you know that's that gives you a little room to work there it's just you'd rather not have to uh, have the deer walking away from you before you get a shot <laughs> <off>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so let me ask you about uh, a deer's ability to perceive different senses at the same time is i know like i have friends who who run like rabbit dogs or coon dogs and they their dogs almost shut off parts of their Body, like some senses, to focus on their nose. Is there ever a time when a deer is more concentrated, like on its hearing or its smell, and they aren't perceiving as much visual sense? You know, I, uh,
5: that, that's one of those things, and, and that until we can get inside a deer's head and figure out exactly what they're that, sensing, that, that'd be impossible to determine. But, uh, yeah, you know, there is. I do have a couple of observations, kind of that, that they're related to that, and uh-huh. that uh, I, I ran coon dogs for, for years and years and years, and I've noticed. And we're just going to deal with the sense of smell, not, not with the vision. But I've I've noticed when when he's just running and just just uh, not really paying attention, he can run over a coon track or something and ne- never even put his nose to the ground mm-hmm. until he actually starts working. Mm-hmm. So. Once he gets that smell he starts focusing on that sense and focusing on that track, they can perceive it much better than if they're, you know, and you you think we do the same thing Mm -hmm. until you notice something and and apply your interest to it. You know, you may miss it. Mm -hmm. but once you see it, then you can,
2: then you can, uh, then you can see it in detail.
1: Mm. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Mm. So yeah. Um, so, if, I mean, if, if uh, I, I've had the instances where um, a lot of times, and I think I've heard this from different hunters as well, uh, but right at dark, um, it's almost, it's kind of hard to get deer to go away so you can get out of your stand sometimes. It seems like there's a, a heightened sense of relaxation or just calm that time of day, even though, I mean, from what the research that you're telling us it seems like that they could they can see really well still during that low light time is that um i mean what what's the reasoning there for them to be like it seems like if they'd come in 30 minutes earlier they would see every movement that you make when but when it's right at dark they you know just almost don't pay attention to anything you do you have to throw a water bottle out of them out of the stand at them to get them to go away sometimes you know that's an extremely tough question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
2: I am not a deer,
5: but uh, just to throw out some speculation is their visual acuity actually declines so, you know even, during, even as it gets dimmer and dimmer in the evening as well. Mm-hmm. It has to, just like ours does, because we're, you're relying primarily on the cone the, uh, the vision, and then it's going to transition into rod vision when it gets really you know, at real dark. Mm-hmm. So you know that's one aspect of it, and it might be related to But I think some of it is related to the, you know the animals feeling of security. Okay. And you know, and deer know, deer learn when when to you know when to worry about a predator like a human,
1: mm-hmm. and they
5: adjust their behaviors accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and deer know that humans are really only dangerous until dark. Mm-hmm. And after, and, you know, right. At least in most places. you know, some, Yeah. Some places. Some places in rural Georgia, that might be different. Yeah, right? same here.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> no so, doubt. But, but, you know, that their, their perception of, of that that danger is, you know, uh, only when hunters are in the field, in the sands.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So I think it might have to do a little bit with their learned behavior uh, of when danger occurs. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. We've we got a big study going on right now down in South Florida, just in, in the Panther range. And uh we've got a bunch of deer with GPS collars on that. We, we call it over 300 deer with GPS collars down there. And we're looking at their—one of the aspects was looking at their behavior as related to the behavior of the panther. And the panther down there is almost you know, almost completely nocturnal. Well, the deer responded to become almost diurnal, that they don't move much hmm. at night. They move all, all day long, though. Hmm. And you, th- you think about the—, the Especially in South Florida, moving all day long. You're moving during the heat of the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem real adaptive, but you know it's very adaptive when you realize your main source of mortality moves at night.
2: Right? Huh? Hmm. That's interesting. So, um, I mean, I guess obviously moonlight is going to affect um, in most situations where you don't have maybe a large predator like that. Um, it's going to affect deer movement at night. Can you kind of go into Detail a little more on how deer see, you know, how their vision works at night.
5: Um, yeah, and that, that's a that's a tough one. Obviously, there there is some color out there reflected from from the sun reflecting off the moon. Uh, so they, there is, a, you know, I would expect them to have a little bit of color vision at that time, whereas we see primary black and white. Um, remember, deer have a tapetum at the back of their retina that reflects that light back over their uh, rods and cones a second time. That's what causes the deer's eyes shine.
1: Mm-hmm. But
5: that mm-hmm. do- that doubles their perception of, of light at nighttime. It doubles their ability to see at night. Plus, they have a much wider opening in the pupil. They can open up their pupil much wider than we can. They got much bigger eyes than we do. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the wider opening in the pupil allows more light in there. Uh, anybody that deals with objective lenses on scopes and binoculars, you know, knows that as you increase the objective, the, the diameter of the objective lens, the light gathering ability increases by the square of that mm-hmm. diameter. So if they can open their eyes two to three times as big as we can open ours, they're just because of that their light gathering ability is four to nine times they There, doubling that with the tapetum, so you you already have a tremendous you know increase in ability to see at nighttime. Hmm. It's very hard, hard for us to perceive, you know, their their ability at night. Right.
1: but mm-hmm. like, you
5: know, if, if, you know, that's there's a big difference when you have a moonlit night versus no moon, right? A new moon. Mm-hmm. So you know that amount of light out there on a moonlit night, they can see very very well.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: On a and you've noticed that deer do seem seem to move. You see them out and it feels a lot more on a moonlit night than a, than on a dark night.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And you know, so you know, they they feel more comfortable because they can
3: see better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to apply that to the hunter, what's, what color of a headlamp would be more advantageous for a hunter to use, you know going in early in the morning or exiting late at night?
5: Uh, well you know that, that's a kind of a tough one, and I, and I think there's a, an awful lot of marketing in, in, associated with this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you see deer standing on the side of the road with their headlights going by with you know, the other on vehicles. Or you know they they see lightning bugs at night and they see lightning at night you know there there's flashes of light and stuff like that um, I don't think you can camouflage a light
1: mm-hmm. you know,
5: but I don't think it's that big of a worry to them whether they see a white light move, because they do not realize there's a hunter behind that white light
1: mm-hmm. uh-huh.
5: you know you know until they you know unless they hear the sound of it is what associated with it and, and pick up that cadence right uh, or pick up some some motor from it. But mm-hmm. if you wanted to minimize their ability to see any light, you know something into the red, which is you know the dark, dark reds, which we see better than deer. Deer don't see as far into the red part of the spectrum as we do.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. So, so you know how when when we uh when when we see reds and it starts getting darker and darker and darker red, it turns to black.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
5: That happens. Fur- that happens further down the spectrum to deer.
1: Hmm.
5: So something something that we would see as a dark red, they would probably perceive as a black. Well. But, you know, but even even red lights, you know, red red headlights and stuff like that are going to bleed a little bit of white light. Yeah. You know, sure. Unless you've got a perfect lens. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: I'm not colorblind, but uh, my red headlamp, I can't hardly see. It feels like it is the dullest lamp that I have, so I have trouble seeing that. I'm sure the deer are seeing it as black <laughs> if I can't hardly yeah, see yeah. it. And
5: then, yeah, that, that's probably true. If it's <laughs> if it's that dark for you, they're not going to perceive it that much.
2: Yeah. hmm Yeah.
3: So, OK, so while we're on colors, if you were going to, say, design your own camouflage, where would you start? <laughs> or if that's confidential or something, you know, <laughs> no, you know, actually, we're 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 working on some of that. <laughs> um, very
5: cool. More to be told later. <laughs> you know, and and I think it's possible that the. the, the to make a camel that takes away a little bit of the deer's ability to see that movement, which is important
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
5: and to, and to work within the color, you know, the color spectrum that a deer can see. We can, we can work to the deer's eye. The problem is for that stuff to be accepted by the hunter. And it's going to look, it would probably end up looking very weird to a hunter. Uh The educational, the the education it would take to get a hunter to wear something that looks really stupid in the woods. Yes.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, I know, Tyler and I both wear Sitka, and at first you look at it and you're like, "Man, I don't know." But then you know we've been in the stand, killed deer with it; it works. Or like some of the ASAT camo, you know, has the really big like squiggly blotches through it and stuff. You know, it just doesn't look anything like the trees you're in, right? But but it works, so Mm -hmm. I guess there's something to it.
1: It's just uh, like you said, and I know I
3: know
5: Sitka based their camo based off off some of the work that we did with the guys from University of California. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're they're a company that actually uses science to to develop their camos.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah. So, you know, I I, I applaud them on that. That's cool.
3: But so, you know, you said earlier that, like, DRC probably in something in the range of, like, a 2060, according to our vision. So, I mean, there's got to be a distance where, like, camo doesn't really even matter anymore, right? Like, you know, 70 or 80 yards, something like that. It's just a blotch.
5: Yeah. you know, and here's where I keep coming back, and I think that that's, you know, I kind of commented on this earlier in the, the discussion is that the camel pattern might be less important than the movement. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and the biggest thing you can do with a camel pattern is break break up the outline. That's, I think obviously that's important. But if there, you can develop a camel that can actually help you mask movement, mm-hmm. that would be the critical thing, not to mask the colors.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
5: so and yeah and distance obviously would would come into play it even comes into play with humans you know you can see somebody a camel uh as as you get closer they become more, much more visible
2: mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, okay so we talked about how they see well into the blue spectrum uh that white reflects uh blue obviously along with other colors um so when in the SICKA that I wear, there's a lot of white and blue. And it makes sense to me because when a deer's looking up at me in a tree stand, they're seeing white and blue behind me in most situations, especially, you know, November on. And so mm-hmm. is it, I guess, does that make sense in theory that we, I mean, should we be wearing stuff that's more white and light blue? Um. Or and then also from a like access standpoint, should we be wearing something darker to walk in so that we're not this white and blue thing walking in along horizon level? You know,
5: and I, and I think you you've hit on some things that uh, that the blue stick isn't even think about as well. But this uh, this idea that um, if you're in a tree is against a blue background which, you know, during the daytime or what we perceive as a black, but deer will still see a lot of colors in there right at evening as well. And having that that, that same type of reflectance in your camo is probably appropriate.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Much more appropriate than having just a big black blob, you know, against right. a white background.
1: Because mm-hmm. that would
5: help, that would accentuate movement. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to have something that would break up a pattern, you know, a skylight pattern. Or if you're hunting in, uh, uh, in you know, snow conditions, same thing, mm-hmm. having having that white in there that's going to ref- you know be camouflaged against the white of the snow or basically what you do would probably see more as blues would be appropriate more appropriate than having a big blob moving across the landscape. Again, what you're doing in there is camouflaging the movement, mm-hmm. not necessarily the color.
1: Mm-hmm. But
5: having something you know if you're if on the ground, it might be a little bit more appropriate to have something of, uh, you know much darker. Mm-hmm. It doesn't reflect that because the sky doesn't occur on the
1: on the ground, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
3: yeah. So, what about you know? You talked earlier a little bit about the florist and orange stuff, and I get that. I understand how they don't have the right things in their eye to perceive that as a bright color like what we do. But I've always been hung up on the idea that like it's still got to look like a big blotch of something solid, right? So yes, it, yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. Here's here's two th- two aspects
5: of it to think about. First of all, if it is a solid of color, you know, if you're wearing a solid uh, blaze orange, that is one solid color, and it doesn't matter what color it is; it's still one solid color. The color that would be moving in the landscape. So, having a breakup pattern on your um, on your camel or on your blaze orange would be appropriate to try mm-hmm. to you know break up that color. The color is not as important. You don't see that as you know as vividly as we do. Uh, and there's a lot of oranges out there at that time of year as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: So, so you know, I'm not worried about the color of blaze orange. I'm worried more about the size or the, the, the you know, that this is one color. And then one other aspect of the blaze orange is a lot of blaze orange out there that's built into fabrics. And then you also see blaze orange that are kind of like the vinyl vests. Mm-hmm. You know, anything that has a white. So you're getting actually two two reflectance off of some, something like vinyl. You get a white flash reflectance off of that that gives it that shine, which includes all the colors of the spectrum, and the, or you know, most of them. And then you get the, the actual color reflectance from the, from the blaze orange.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So you're actually getting a lot bigger broad span view of a number of different colors with that white flash. And you've seen where, you know, it doesn't matter what color it is, but if you've got something plastic out there, you get a white flash from it, you know, within in the sun. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So the same thing with the deer. So my my suggestion is, don't wear something that's a a vinyl pattern or you know or or something. You even maybe even nylon that sort of have that kind of sheen to it. Mm -hmm. Have it as as a dull, soft color into a cotton or a wool or
3: something like that. Yeah. So matte cloth is way better no matter what. Yeah. Certainly. Totally makes sense. Cool. That's that's awesome, Doctor Miller. And you've (laughs) you've supplied us with so many like things that are almost just mind blowing. You know, and it's cool to have guys like you who, who have dedicated their lives to studying deer and then sharing that information with us, and we really, really appreciate that as as deer hunters and just, uh, I guess you'd call us amateur biologists as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> in, in your opinion, what is the one mistake that hunters make that gets them kicked off by deer vision more often than anything else? Um. <laughs> They sound a little facetious, but uh, I think
5: over. I think and, and the, the biggest mistake hunters make, period, is relying on technology instead of hunting prowess and, and ability. Ooh, mm. ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> so and that you know we, we we hunters are as bad as bass fishermen, and my wife's a horse person. It's just as bad. That anything on the market that thinks you will make it will make you better, they're willing to buy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, if it works, I might as well try that too. You know, uh-huh. The thing is to, to learn the animal, and hunt the animal. You know, that's one aspect. So, but, uh, you know, get back to your question. I think, you know, the movement aspect of it,
1: Yeah,
2: I think
5: the, yeah. you know, the moving in your stand, you know, if, if a deer is far away, not if a deer can't see you as far enough away, they can't see you. It doesn't matter how much you move in your stand, but you know, that movement right when, and you've all been busting your stand, making that movement, trying to adjust to a draw or something like that. And, you know, watching and understanding that deer's behavior and his visual capabilities so that you can, you know, move in your stand to make the draw and actually when the draw and stuff like that. Uh, I think there's a lot of deer lost because people think that the deer's not seeing it when it can see them.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool.
5: hmm
3: Cool. Yeah. Well, I I can guarantee you one thing. I won't be having anything blue on me this year, and I will watch my movement because Tyler's kind of been critical of how much I move in the stand sometimes, <laughs> which I probably do move too much, but I also. And I'm often hanging my scents at like 35 feet up in the air because <laughs> of that. So <laughs> maybe I can move them down a little bit lower. But hey, <laughs> Miller,
5: if you got if you got one more second, that's actually a very important point that you just made. Okay, being yeah, above I mean, the vision of the deer, you know, because they got that slit pupil and because they got that streak in their retina, they don't see above and below as near as well as they see at the horizon.
3: Uh huh.
5: So is there a degree could, there? Uh, I, I, I don't know that you could actually put a degree to it. You know, the further yeah. a deer is away, the smaller that angle will be. But If uh-huh. the deer's right under you, they want, you can move all you want
3: if the deer is standing directly underneath you and they'll never see you.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
3: So hmm. the blind spot is actually much more up and down than it is left or right. Exactly. Huh. Cool. Very cool. That's good to know. So there is some valor to my high tree stands. <laughs> there you go, man. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for... Uh, for being with us today, and then dealing with some of our technical issues that we've had, <laughs> but it's been good to get to talk to you. And uh, can't wait till the next time we get to meet up and shake hands. All right, that's fun, guys. All, All right. right, thank you. See ya,
2: man. It's just hard to beat somebody who knows that much about whitetails. Like something to be learned in like every sentence, you know.
3: Yeah. I know it, man. It's, uh, sometimes I think that I know a little bit of stuff and then I talk to someone who actually knows things and <laughs> I'm like, okay, just sit down, KC. Yep, <laughs> yep. My goodness, man, I'm, I'm overloaded at the moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool stuff, man. It's, um, you know, it's cool to think, uh, to do tactics and that kind of thing and like hunting and everything. But I feel like when you do the biological side of things and you understand that, that, uh, you might be able to like pick up your own tactics through experience and after that you know after you learn that knowledge and it stick with you a little better you know what i mean mm-hmm. i mean i think um it's very valuable to learn stuff like that um and yeah and uh, it's
3: also kind of like going along with just the being a all-around outdoorsman thing you know mm-hmm. do you really care about the animal or do you really like have a passion for this if all you do is like just try to kill them kill them kill them right you know like i i truly like to know about deer vision because i think it's cool Mm -hmm. you know it's so neat to me that like there's animals out there that perceive the world differently than we do like and we can't even wrap our minds around how they see things
2: yeah no that's that's exactly right it's like one of those things that just you can only imagine that's it you know it's it's Mm -hmm. crazy um, but we do have a couple of videos, um, because we do like to hunt them too. We have some <laughs> yeah. videos where we're doing some scouting this summer that have released since we last talked to you guys. One is a PLC, Public Land Chronicle. If you uh, follow us, then you've seen those on our YouTube channel and make sure if you, uh, haven't, then go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, Because you'll see more of these throughout the year. But uh, pretty much anytime we have anything interesting happen for us on public land, we do a little short video of it. And we found a pretty studly couple of bucks um, on a piece of public recently. And I think the title of that video is like Mature Bucks in the Middle. And so uh, it's a PLC. It's on our playlist for 2018 PLC or Public Land Chronicles. So check that out uh, if you're interested in seeing what we've been up to on public. If you're interested in seeing what we've been up to on private, um, in our new venture there, we have released a video of the spot that I'm hunting, uh, me doing a few different things and starting to uh, develop a, I guess, plan on this, on this property. Um, and I believe the latest video of that is called... Um, patterning a big buck or patterning a mature buck something like that um, anyway it's on our permissions playlist so if you go to our youtube channel and look up the permissions playlist there's two two videos they're both of the walmart property which is the one i'm hunting and kc uh, we've got a video coming up soon it won't be up by the time you listen to this more than likely but uh <laughs> he's uh He's got one, that uh, a new property that is pretty awesome, and so we're going to be <clears throat> chronicling that as well, and uh, we've already done one video. We just got to get it edited up and, and put out to the world, so hopefully you guys can check in on that. Uh, what else then? you need to be checking in on, KC?
3: Y'all need to be following us on social media, especially this upcoming week, because we are traveling to Bozeman, Montana. So I hear that that's like a sportsman's paradise. I haven't been, but everybody (laughs) I know that like really, really likes to pursue animals and the outdoors ends up moving to Bozeman, I think. So uh, that's going to be a pretty sweet trip for us. We're going up there for the TRCP Media Summit like we did last year in Minneapolis, which was a great time. But we're going to go up there a couple days early and most definitely do some trout fishing. It's going to be hopper season uh we are going to possibly get some pictures of some big bucks in some agricultural fields so that would be cool and probably be visiting some of our friends up there we might even stop by sit and see what's going on so it should be a pretty sweet trip and uh, y'all be sure and follow us on social media especially our instagram story because that's where we put a lot of our day-to-day stuff and uh, see what we got going on up there
2: yeah for sure man i'm excited about it and uh I appreciate you guys listening. Remember, this is your element. Living it.
0: You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own? Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home, overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.